Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill-Smith, and this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 58. We've got something very special planned for you for episode 58, and that is a vacation for us. (laughs) (laughs) We're just kidding. Jen and I are on vacation. On vacances, as they say in French. Oh, do they say that in French? I don't think so. I think that's just like the really bad way that I learned how to speak French. On vacances? I learned a long time ago on CDs, and I don't think any of it's correct. But um, <laughs> it was just somebody putting on a fake French accent. <laughs> <Yeah>. and you <laughs> were just <laughs> you were like, oh, oh, oh s'il vous plaît. <laughs> I used to like, I used to do this thing for my coworkers, and they loved it. But I would, um, when I was learning French on CD, it would be like, j'aime la pomme, and then it would be like, <laughs> I like apples. <laughs> Do you have a cookie? And then, (laughs) (laughs) so I learned how to speak French with this really heavy, terrible accent. I love it. And then that's the only way you can do it. Yeah. (laughs) You learn from a very angry Frenchman. Uh, J'aime les montagnes. I like the mountains. <laughs> That's really good. You know a lot of you know a lot of French. <laughs> yeah, I do. I know a lot of CD French. A lot um, of CD French. Okay, guys. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, uh, we're on vacation. For this episode, we've put together three of our favorite crazy stories. So this is an all crazy episode. Um, so they're ones, if you've been listening from the beginning, it's ones you've heard before, but maybe have forgotten, or maybe you just want to revisit them. And if you have just are a recent listener, these will be new to you and maybe encourage you to go back and listen to some of our back episodes. But these are ones that we love doing and that we are excited for you guys to hear again so that um, we can be relaxing and off for a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs> But does that sound does that sound right? Does that sound like we're giving you something special we're rather giving, than you guys are giving us a break? This is a mutually beneficial arrangement for you mm-hmm. and for us. But yeah, these are our absolute favorites and we know you guys are going to enjoy. Let's get to it. Like there are so many twists and turns to the story that it could be like a three-part episode, but we don't have time for that, so I'm going to give it to you hard and I'm going to give it to you fast. All right. <laughs> So this is the wild and crazy love story of Bert Pugash and Linda Riss. Do you know this one? No. Oh, man. Buckle up. Here's the thing you'll learn about me, Jen, is that even if I have seen this or read about it like you won't remember no yeah I'm like I'm one of those people who like I take in media and then I instantly forget it like I'm like I could watch a tv show and then you could be like oh what just happened on that and I'll be like I have no idea you are like every 
comic stream <laughs> right audience. I'm like oh my gosh that joke is so good <laughs> I've never heard it before <laughs> all right so tell me anyway, tell me your story okay so in 15 in 1959 in East Bronx New York a 32 year old Burton Pugash which is funny we're gonna call him Bert from here on out because I was watching the documentary um there is a documentary called Crazy Love and every time in the like for the first 30 minutes every time they would say Burton Pugash I was like well who is Pooh <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were saying Bert and Pugash <laughs> So anyway all right so um 32 year old Bert Pugash um spots a gorgeous 20 year old young woman um named Linda Riss on the street um Linda has like dark hair porcelain skin sharp dresser she's like a knockout and he immediately says to his friend um like who is that like i have to have her i have to have this woman and he was became completely obsessed with like gaining the love of this beautiful woman so bert was um a very successful lawyer and when i say lawyer i mean he was one of those like shameless ambulance chasers like he would even do that thing where he would pay um off doctors to give, you know, fake diagnoses, whatever, like, would oh, suit yeah. his needs. Like, he was really crooked. Um, but he was very wealthy because of that. So he had, like, cars, a private plane. He owned a nightclub. He was very flashy. Um, and he wasn't very attractive for standards um, back then. I mean, like, these days, you know, his, like, lanky body and weak chin would get laid <laughs> regularly. <laughs> He's the lead cool singer of some band with like eighteen word name. Oh, totally. <laughs> he would be dating Kate Beckinsale for sure. Um, but back then, um, not really. Um, so he starts to like wine and dine Linda, you know, he, and he brings her to the club all the time. They start dating, um, and every time she walks into the club, he arranges it so that every time um, she walks in, he got the band to start playing the song called Linda. Oh, okay. Which is like baller move. Um, so while she wasn't initially attracted, I'm imagining yeah. her like, like walking out, like walking in and be like, oh, I forgot something there. Like Lynn, okay. and then like she walks out, and she walks in, Lynn, Lynn. like they start back up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or what if she was like, I, I never said my name was Linda. <laughs> um, so. Anyways, while she wasn't initially attracted to him, she certainly starts to fall in love with this, like, flashy lifestyle, Mm -hmm. for sure. Um, Because she was, like, a poor girl from the Bronx. um, And her family didn't have a lot of money. But, um, so he soon proposes to her, and she agrees until she finds out that Bert is already married. Um, Bert had been... Yeah. Beat Mar. Um, Bert had been married to wife Francine Pugash for about eight years, and they had a daughter, um, and he had a daughter with this woman that was born, like, severely mentally and physically handicapped, mm-hmm. which is, like, asshole. Yeah. Like you're, to- <laughs> like, you're just, like, leaving your wife and poor daughter at home to, you know, go off and live this like flashing nightclub lifestyle like go fuck yourself so um but apparently francine knew of all of his um transgressions and like she knew he was like sleeping with his secretary like he did a lot of shady shit but she didn't care as long as he stayed married to her um she even at one point called linda and was like look have your affair do whatever you want but just know that i'm never giving him a divorce so like good luck trying to marry him so um 
So Bert, you know, tells Linda, like, no, 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 like, I'm, I'm leaving my wife, and he shows her these divorce papers that he had filed, but then um, Linda was actually smart enough to have a lawyer friend look at the papers, and the lawyer was like, no, these are bullshit, like, this guy sucks, these are not Like, he's not, even, he's not even a good enough lawyer to make, like, to make good, good. <laughs> like, which I don't know, I'm, yeah, I'm like, that's not that hard. Yeah, <laughs> so Linda was, like... You know, pretty pissed, and she just decides to, you know, leave for a little while, get out of town, so she goes with some friends to Miami, and while um, she's there, she meets this super handsome guy named Larry Schwartz, um, which she refers to as a real uh, Rock Hudson type, which we later learn to find out that that means gay. Right. So, <laughs> but he's like, he's very handsome. Um, so Larry uh, isn't rich, but he's a really good person and they fall deeply in love. Um, and um, her friends even say that like when she was with um, this guy, Larry, that was like the only time that they ever really saw Linda show true affection to anyone. Um, and Linda, by the way, was still a virgin and saving herself for marriage. Um, so of course Larry was like, uh, let's get married. (laughs) (laughs) And so they, um, so, you know, he, he becomes, they get engaged, but Bert is still completely obsessed with Linda, like sending her flowers and calling and going by her house all the time. He reaches out to her family, begs them to help her get, um, help him get her back and they're just like listen dude there's nothing we can do she's actually even engaged to another man so go away um so forever <laughs> so this when he learns that linda's engaged and then you know in his mind he's thinking he's going to get to have sex with her when they get married so like that it, it enrages him and he goes oh because he's like she's gonna have sex with another it's man. gonna be me not you yeah 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 is that like the obsession with virgins you're like Oh yay! You get to have bad sex. Like it's woo-hoo. like dogs peeing on things. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's instinctual not territory. All right, so he gets mad. Oh, so um, <laughs> so he like starts harassing her. He like throws rocks through her windows. Like he's trying to get her scared so that he thinks that she'll come running back to him. He even like con- considers like paying someone to beat her up. You know. Um, to so that she'll go running back to him. He actually at one point actually was ready. He went to her house with a gun and was going to kill her, but then was like, Jesus. I can't kill her. Yeah, he's cuckoo. Yeah. He's crazy. Um, so in December of 1958, Linda goes to the 42nd precinct and tells the detectives, like, listen, Bert is threatening me, but surprise, the police refuse to press charges. Um, like, oh, little lady. Yeah. You're probably asking for it. Did you not have sex with him? I know. Um, This is all your fault. What were you wearing? Um, And then on January 13th, Linda goes to the Bronx Magistrate's Courts and takes out a summons against Bert for harassment, but it's dismissed. Surprise, surprise. Mm -hmm. Then... Um, in March, she tells she goes to the 42nd Precinct again in the Bronx, um, and they tell her they can't provide protection until an act is committed. So they can't protect her until he does something, right? which is some bull-ass bullshit. And so on Monday, June 15th, 1959... Um, a man posing as a messenger goes to Linda's house and rings the doorbell, and she's all excited, thinking that it's an engagement gift, you know, or a wedding gift. Yeah. So Linda runs to the door, and when she opens it, the man 
throws lye, which is acid, in her face, blinding and disfiguring her. Oh, no. I know. I know. So it's quickly traced back to Bert. Of course. Right, of course. Um, after which he's arrested and he awaits to stand trial. Um, so Linda is um, hospitalized for months. And in the beginning, Larry, her fiancé, the Rock Hudson guy, says that he's going to stand by her um, and that no matter what. But then, like, as soon as the story is out of the newspapers and all eyes aren't on Larry, he leaves her. Because he's a Larry. Fucking Larry. I was hoping we had a good guy in this story. Mm -mm. Nope. No. So then, while on trial, Bert's wife, Francine, finally leaves him. Okay. Finally. Well, so she gets out of there. She was like, so, okay, I can finally leave him and I know I'll get the money. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. And Bert decides to represent himself in the trial because he's, he's a, a lawyer, lawyer and he's cocky and mm-hmm. he's crazy. And so, um, so he's like, have you crazy? Heard the, there's like the saying. So I think you know this. I don't, that I used to be a lawyer. I was a lawyer. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So my the judge that I used to work for, he would always. I think this is like a common saying, but it's like, you know, he who represents himself has a fool for a client. Oh yeah. So it's like if you're a lawyer, you're representing yourself. You're an idiot. You're just an idiot. You know, like you. Anyway, Ted Bundy did it, and it was cuckoo. So Bert being like a lunatic you know of course has like all kinds of crazy courtroom antics like he at one point he tries to get a mistrial um by in the courtroom he takes off his glasses smashes them uses the uh glass from it cuts his wrists open and screams i love you linda Cool. Yeah, real cool. So people think might think that this is like, oh, a desperate act for love. But in the documentary, when he shows his scars, he, he actually says, uh, these are the scars from when I tried to get that mistrial. Right. Like, yeah. not like when I tried to prove my love. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, he was, like, he was this probably... Is my scars from the mistrial. Yeah, He's either very a proud of it. or like... To yeah. be declared unfit for trial or something like that. Yeah. That's, yeah. Like everything he does for her or to get her has nothing to do with who. It's all about him and what right. it means to her. Like what she means to him, not like. It's not about I love her qualities. You. Yes. Yeah. It's about his obsession with her Absolutely. and his control. And <clears throat> yeah, he's crazy. Anyway, so um, Bert um, spends 14 years in prison. And then, um, and Linda tries to date, um, but, you know, she can't really get close to anyone. She would go on dates. She would wear these, like, really chic-looking dark glasses because she was very fashionable. Yeah. And um, so she would wear these, like, really cool glasses and, like, met, and, she, you know, she had an amazing body, beautiful face. Like, her face wasn't disfigured. It was just her eyes. So mm-hmm. it, she could cover them up with the glasses. And um, But then when she would get close to someone, you know, when she took off her glasses, she, she said it scared them off. So she eventually just stopped um, uh, trying. And Bert, the whole time while he's in jail, just continues to write her letters and harass her and tell a bull, just tell her how in love he still is with her. Why are they and letting him send her letters? I don't know. Maybe it's because it was the 50s and the 60s. And <laughs> yeah, just, I guess. I don't know. So... Um, at one point, she's like, oh, yeah, you're sorry? All right, how about show me how sorry you are by sending me some money, you know, because I'm broke now and right. I can't get a rich husband because of what you did. So he was like, oh, all right. So he immediately starts, like, 
lawyering because he was a lawyer and like in the like inmates and like you know doing stuff in the jail oh, okay, so that yeah. he can get money from them and then he sends all of this money to Linda um so they speak on the phone here and there um and Linda still though you know she's taking money from the from him but yeah. she is also telling the courts like do not let him out of jail right so then they let him out of jail right of course <laughs> and, um during um so you know he's kind of a spectacle you know because it's this big crazy story so he's on a tv interview and on the tv interview he again professes his love to her and then he proposes to her on tv um, Linda, of course, is having um, none of this. You know, she wants nothing to do with them. And then, like, years later, um, one day at a grocery store, this woman um, named Margaret Powers, who was actually the police officer who was sent originally um, assigned to protect her during the trial. Like, she was there her protection oh, officer. Okay. Um, Margaret Powers runs into Linda at the grocery store and, um, you know, just sees her looking very lonely and she looks in her cart and there's just like one can of peas and one, <laughs> the sad woman, like. one spam <laughs> or whatever. And like her heart just breaks for her. So she decides to call up one of Linda's good friends and was like, we need to get these two back together. Wait, Yes. Linda and Bert? Yes. So the woman that was protecting her originally from this maniac was like, you know what? He still loves her. She's alone. Why not get these two back together? Oh, God. I know. So... Um, they arrange a meeting. Like so, the friend is like, "Yeah, I guess you're right." You know, like, she what the has hell? a sad sack. I hate a, I hate yeah. a woman alone. So they arrange a meeting with Linda. And Bert, and Bert is, like, ecstatic, but he's also super leery because he thinks it might be, like, a revenge setup, and, um, you know, which, because it's totally something he would do. Right. And so, um, but, and then Linda is, of course, apprehensive, but then once they see each other, um, sparks fly, and Linda actually says, like, oh, jail looks good on him. He's got a man's body now. He's not a little wimp. You know, like, he, <laughs> jail did like the time did him good or whatever and so he proposes to her on the spot for the 10,000th time and then um so they dated for five months and then they they got married it's like like stockholm syndrome you know what i mean like yeah. she's been so scarred and worn down by her abuser that like she's yeah. just like well i don't have any other options and this is all i deserve do you know what i mean like yeah. that mentality it's like it's so hard to understand and and I have it, but like, unless, you know, until you're like inside of it. And she probably just felt like, well, everybody's telling me this is my best option. So, yeah. And yeah. And yeah. I think that she, he had a lot of money because, um, and also he says that the, um, all of the hype, um, like from, like who he was and their yeah. story, it like tripled his business once he got out of jail. So he was like even richer. Yeah. But um, so you think that's the end of the story, right? I mean, I'm hoping, but no. I. <laughs> I'm gonna not. guess not. <laughs> uh, no. So like year. So they're married, and then years later, Bert is accused of um, terrorizing. His former mistress, Evangeline Borgia, who was his secretary that was 27 years younger than him. 
Uh, he gets physically violent with her. He breaks her wrist and threatens to quote unquote blind her like Linda. Yeah. So he goes to jail again, but Linda doesn't leave him. In fact, she defends him to the death, saying like, quote unquote, he wouldn't hurt a fly. It's like, yeah, he would, Linda, because he did. Like, right? you're blind. You're the fly. In a million ways, you're blind. Like, yeah. he blinded you, and what the hell? Yeah, so he's... Um, but, yeah, she's just like, not my... Actually, she's just like, not my man. He would never do that. Right, he's he like, did it for me because he loved me, but he wouldn't... He's not... He was only violent. He only did it to because he loved me. Yeah. yeah, and she's totally fine with him, like, cheating on her or whatever. And, um, yeah, and then... Um, Joan, just I think it's just like like this is a terrible story for men to think that if they have money and power they can get away with whatever the f they want. Um, and he was eventually released from jail after you know um, terrorizing his former mistress, and then they remained happily maybe married until Linda eventually uh, passes away in two thousand thirteen. And is he still alive? He, I, he is still alive. <sighs> Um, I think, according to Wikipedia... Well, I mean, well, Wikipedia knows all, so... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty aft. It's a crazy story. That is a crazy story. And what's the documentary called? It's called Crazy Love. Crazy Love? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Okay. That was a good one. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Do you want to hear a crazy story? I would like to hear a crazy story. Okay, so my crazy story is one that you probably have heard of. And I think that all like true crime buffs probably know about, but like okay, like especially because it involves celebrities, okay. But because I, you know, I have like the memory of a of a goldfish, uh-huh. <laughs> like for pop culture and for details. Like I actually have a really good memory for people or events in my own life. But when and it comes to names, like, are you pe- good with people's names? Not especially people's names, but faces. I'm like. 100% I know who that person is. If I've met you one time, I'm like, like I often happens in an audience where I'll be like, that guy was here last, that week. guy was here last time. I know. Ah. I remember you. Are you, do you remember me? <laughs> like, yeah. like do, you, is, do you remember this joke? Because I definitely told it last time too, but I don't remember like if anything I read or watched on TV. It's like instantly gone. Like I am any kind of media. I am like, it's gone. Um, so I may have heard this story before, but it was all new to me. And so the story itself is pretty straightforward, like the story of the bad stuff that happens, but it has some like crazy twists and like weird things. Um, and I felt like it was just like too good not to share. Okay. Okay. So this is the story of Dorothy Stratton. Oh, the Playboy model. Yes. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So this is one of those where... If you know the story... I'm not going to say nothing. Oh, no, not you. (laughs) I just mean in general. To the people out there, um, I may have some of these details wrong, so just, you know, look at our sources (laughs) um, on the website. And I actually got most of, or a lot of, kind of the outline and and a lot of the details from um, an article called Death of a Playmate, which was in the Village Voice um, in 1980 by this woman, Teresa Carpenter, and actually won a Pulitzer Prize. So... um, Although I have to say, reading it with today's eyes, so what is that? Forty years later, uh huh. It's like I mean, this is a woman writing the article. I'm like, it's so sexist, is it? <laughs> it's so there are so oh, many ways a that women article are about a Playboy model. I know, like, there's one point where she describes like this woman Dorothy when she grew boobs, and it's like she I can't remember what she calls them, like some kind of 
luscious lobes or something like that. I was just like, you're a woman. Come on. (laughs) Disgusting. It was a Pulitzer Prize. Anyway. Okay. Dorothy Stratton. She is... Okay. Dorothy Stratton. Of course it won a Pulitzer Prize, though, by the way, because I'm sure that a bunch of men read the article and they were like, this was... Right. This is so smart. So engrossing. (laughs) And... There's just something about it. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, Okay. So Dorothy Stratton was born Dorothy Ruth Hoogstratton in Vancouver, British Columbia in 1960. Her parents had immigrated from the Netherlands and she had a younger brother, John Arthur, and a little sister, Louise, who was born in 1968. And her father had left the family when she was very young and her family just never really had much money. And so in 1977, um, Dorothy was 17 years old. She was going to high school. Um, and she was working at Dairy Queen, probably, you know. She did the cones. Yeah, she probably did the co- the dipped cones. <laughs> um, maybe she, like, held up the blizzards upside down. Like, nice. very. I'm you sure have was, to do that, by the way. Did you know that you have to do that? I know. Do you ever see part the, of the look rules. on their face like, when Ugh. they do it? They're like, okay, like, very perfunctory, like. And I'm like, you don't have, I don't uh, care. Please don't. It's not like, something it's, I really I want is my thing to be held upside down. But yeah. Yeah. It's like, I get it. Like, yeah. I've worked places like this. Okay. Uh, so she worked at Dairy Queen, and that is when she met 26-year-old Paul Snyder. And Paul uh, grew up in the east end of Vancouver, um, which was a pretty rough area of the city at the time, and maybe still now. I don't know. I've never been to Vancouver. I'd love to go. I hear it's beautiful. Um, his parents divorced when he was young, and he quit school in the seventh grade. And after the seventh grade, he was like basically on his own. In his late teens, he started lifting weights, and he went from, like, this skinny kid to, like, just kind of muscly guy. And in that article, um, they kept going on and on about how his, like, dark hair and mustache were, like, so well-groomed that, <laughs> that women just found him so attractive. He used a pomade for it. Yeah. He a comb. <laughs> that luscious mustache. Um, so it said the women on the night circuit nightclub circuit found him attractive um so he started out as like kind of an event promoter and he was actually pretty successful as like an auto like auto show promoter but soon he was like became like a hustler and a pimp and he wore he wore like a mink he drove a black corvette and he wore a bejeweled star of david around his neck which gave him the nickname Jewish pimp. That's what they called him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and then he also stole people's memes. And that's a comedian joke. I don't think a lot of people know that fat Jew steals people's material. And their oh, memes. no. If you follow the fat Jew, which you shouldn't. The or fat Jewish the, is his name. Oh, I'm sorry. It, yeah, Jewish. I didn't. It's not. Yeah. This is what I'm calling him. That's what he calls yeah. him. Um, and yeah, then he calls the other himself one? the fat Jewish. That's really horrible. Uh, I mean, there's so many of them, but just... Uh, uh, I think it's called Fuck Jerry. Yes, Fuck Jerry. Yeah, they you steal accounts, material from stop. comedians, and then they post it on their... Well, I think that they've had to get better about crediting, right? Right, but they're still not giving... They For a long time, they just flat out stole them. Yeah. And then they would like be super horrible if... Um, if somebody would be like, hey, that's my joke that I wrote, and you're making thousands of dollars off of it yeah and they don't give any anybody that they take the jokes from they don't give them they're like we're giving you exposure which i'm gonna tell you what guys it doesn't pay the rent (laughs) yeah unfortunately so anyway this is a beside the point but if you follow those kinds of accounts stop go seek out great comedians yeah just know that they're not oh they're so funny they're if you think they're so funny then you think that ten thousand other comedians are funny because they're the ones that actually wrote the joke right 
There you go. Stealing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so he was a Jewish pimp. Okay, Um, so Paul... He was like kind of on the outskirts of like the gang gang life in Vancouver, and 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 like the serious gang members saw him as something of a lightweight. Like he was, he wouldn't touch drugs because he was like really afraid of being um, arrested. But he still was doing some like I mean obviously he was doing shady shit. Like he um, he ended up losing money to some loan sharks and got hung out by his ankles from the 30th floor of a hotel Whoa. by some by some gangsters and he was forced to leave Vancouver. So he went to Los Angeles. He started pimping and um, he would drive his sex workers around in a gold like a gold limousine that he bought when he got there. And he was like obsessed with old Hollywood and he had like tried to like weasel his way any way he could into like the elite circles, but he was like no one took him seriously, you yeah. know? And apparently he was just, like, a total braggart. A real, I mean, he sounds like a super annoying guy to be around. He does sound very annoying. Yes. So he actually ended up giving up being a pimp because he wasn't making enough money. He actually had a couple of... Oh, I thought of, you were going to say friends. Like, <laughs> he couldn't make, he any, make friends. any friends being a pimp. <laughs> <laughs> Where are all these great pimp friends? Um, yeah, he actually had a couple of women who were working for him, who stole from him, which, great, good for them. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so he he returned to Vancouver in 1977, and he kind of was, like, decided that he wanted to return to, like, the straight and narrow. Like, he was like, I'm not, I, I want a legitimate job. But, uh-huh. I mean, everything he did was shady, but he was trying to not do illegal things. So one night, um, Paul and a friend of his went to a local Dairy Queen um, and that is where he noticed Dorothy behind the counter. And he told his friend that girl could make a lot of money. And he got her number from another waitress and then started pursuing her pretty hardcore. And so Dorothy, on her part, he thought that she was like, he thought she thought he was like brash, you know. And, yeah. And but she kind of liked that he took charge. Like, I mean, he was nine years older and he was streetwise. And also she was 17 and he started buying her nice Aye, things yeah, and like clothing and jewelry. And he was like obnoxious in public. But Dorothy also found him like really sweet in private. Like he'd buy wine and cook dinner for them. And then afterwards. And she was 17. And she was 17. So right. sweet. I know. And afterwards he'd play guitar for her and it says and then fix hot toddies. I'm like, so basically he just got her real drunk. I know. Um but he, I mean, Paul, because he had been a pimp all those years, he, like, knew how to play on young girls' vulnerabilities. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, here was Dorothy, and she legitimately thought of herself as, like, a plain Jane. Like, she was like, I was playing with big hands. That's how she thought of herself. Aww. Like, she was shy. Um, she wrote, like, really bad poetry. <laughs> um, and she really had, like, no other aspirations than, like, finding a job as a secretary. Like, that's what she thought she was kind of destined to do. And, but then Paul, you know, was there and he's telling her, you're beautiful. And which she was, she was gorgeous. She was like, she had the, like, yeah, she is. She was beautiful. Yeah. She had like girl next door looks and like, you know, an adult porn star body, like the kind of, you know, you know, that, that kind of beauty. Um, (laughs) So Paul, you know, he thought, okay, Dorothy has potential to be in Playboy. Like that is what Mm -hmm. he looked at her and was like, I'm going to, she's going to, I'm going to take her all the way. Um, but he knew like, I'm going to have to slowly introduce this idea. Cause this girl is pretty innocent. Yeah. Um, she'd only had one boyfriend before 
And he had actually tried to promote women as playmates before because apparently there was like, um, at the time, if you discovered, if a photographer or somebody discovered a playmate or somebody who got into Playboy, it was like a $1,000 finder's fee. Jeez. And so, which is, of course, the women didn't get that money. But Yeah, um, that's like another form of pimping. Right. Yeah. So that was like, he was like, I'm going to yeah. get this girl in Playboy. So he had actually used former playmates to work like the auto shows he'd promoted. And so he knew that a lot of these, the women who were former in Playboy, former playmates got into prostitution and drugs and dealt with managers who took advantage advantage of them. And so he was like, I am going to like, kind of like shepherd her. In. And um, he actually, he escorted, it's so gross. He's 26, right? He escorted Dorothy to a graduation dance. Oh God. Um, and then as a graduation present, he took her to a photographer named Yu Meyer, for her first professional photo, which is actually fairly tame. Like she was, it was like she was doing some sexy poses, but she's wearing like this like white kind of full length gown. Like she's right. not. Um, but then a month later, uh, Paul asked Meyer to do another photo shoot and this time nude. And Does it say anything about her parents? Well, it was just her mom. Oh. Um, Cause her dad had oh, left. Right, right, right. And, she was so, probably just grateful to have like a male figure. Yeah, and at the time, you know, she was she had turned eighteen. She graduated from high oh, school, so, so the, basically, yeah. um, Dorothy went and lived with Paul. Gotcha. And um, and actually, and she didn't tell her mom about the nude photo. So she, right. this guy Meyer, took some um, took her first nude photos, and he said that she was nervous, um, but then she like quickly got into it, like. Everybody kind of across the board, which is like makes me so sad. Like, it's just like she took direction really well. She was kind of like um, they somebody said she was like pliable, which is why she made a really good actress because she could kind of like really take direction. Right. Um, she was just like eager to please is what makes me think is that she was like a girl who didn't was too young to know herself, you know. Right. So anyway, so. She got, she took those first photos and then he took her to, uh, Paul took her to another photographer whose name was Ken Honey, who actually had a relationship with Playboy um, to take more shots. And, and that guy, Ken Honey, actually insisted that Dorothy get a release from her mother because in Canada, the age of consent is 19. And so her mother, but her mother signed the form to allow him to take nude photos. Um, And in August, 1978, at 18, Dorothy was flown to LA to for a test shoot with Playboy. So she like quickly rose in the Playboy universe. Her test shots were excellent. Like everybody agreed that she had something really special. Like not only was she beautiful, but she also was like a good actress and she just like was captivating on film. Mm-hmm. So from her first test shot, she was placed among the 16 top contenders for the 25th anniversary Playmate. And she was named... Um, Playmate of the Month for August 1979. And pretty soon after she moved out there, uh, Paul had flown to L.A. and had proposed. And um, so Dorothy worked as a bunny while she, like, in between doing stuff, she worked as a bunny at the Century Playboy Club. And then where they told her, they were like, you have to exercise, um, cut your hair, and change your last name. And the Playboy company had really big plans for Dorothy because they thought she was this like unique talent. Um, And they were often asked for by movie studios to send out playmate types. 
uh-huh. for auditions. And so they started sending Dorothy for all of these auditions. And she started getting roles on television, like here and there. I can't remember. I mean, there were TV shows that I didn't know. Right. Um, but she was doing really well. Like right away, she started getting work. And by the spring of 1979, she was busy modeling or filming. And, um, and she actually, she was like, I mean, I think she was a bit overwhelmed. She asked a doctor for a prescription of Valium um, because she was like having a hard time adjusting to this new life. Like it happened so quickly that she just like went from nothing to like a Playmate model and like on TV. And she was working at Dairy Queen. Yeah. In Vancouver. And she's just like. Valium. That's. Right. And she also said that like. Yes. Um, Although it's not like, I, I mean, I say that I put that in there just to show that she was like having a hard time adjusting, but also there's nowhere that says that she was had like, had pain. a dr- yeah, drug problem. Uh, yeah. She actually didn't take any other drugs. She really didn't drink very much. She was like a pretty straight laced right. kid. Um, aside from the nude modeling. Um, so, so Paul had started working a little in LA. Um, he was promoting male dancers at a disco and ha- like, like promoting wet underwear contests. Um, but he was mostly counting on Dorothy. Like he, this was his meal ticket. You know, right. he, this was he was like he began pressuring her to set a date for their wedding, and would remind her over and over that they had a lifetime bargain. And Dorothy, on her part, was unsure, and everyone around her was trying to talk her out of it, including Hugh Hefner. Um, but she said, like, he cares for me so much. He's always there when I need him. Like I can't imagine being with anybody but Paul. Right. And so they were married in June of 1979, and Paul was growing obsessed with Dorothy's career. Like, he furnished their new apartment with photographs of her everywhere, like nude photos. And he got license plates on his car that said Star 80. Like, so 19, like, she'll be a star by 1980. And he talked about her as, like, the next Marilyn Monroe. And... His just like makes you so. It's like, dude, what if you are a weightlifter? Why don't you just go be a fucking model? Right? You go do all these things. Yeah. And like, don't. Oh, it just makes you mad. It's yeah. Just so controlling, and he's such a leech. Such a leech, and just. And she was just so young. Like yeah. It just, that's the thing that gets it's me. So like she, it made her really uncomfortable. Like his all of this like bragging, him talking about her being a star because she felt like she had the weight of like the weight of the world on her shoulders because she thought not only am I like doing this for me, but this is for him too. And if I fail, I'm failing both of us. And she felt like he had gotten her so far, gotten her there. And so she felt like she owed him. Um, At Playboy though, they kept Paul like completely on the outside. They thought he was like a creep and they rarely invited him to the mansion, even though Dorothy was there all the time. Um, for parties, and it said to roller skate, which I just think is so seventies and early eighties. <laughs> apparently, she was come over to roller skate. Yeah, apparently she was like a really great roller skater. Uh huh. I don't know. Um, and Paul really resented that he was not included. A good roller skate. Yeah, he was yeah. like, I just want to be on t- the wheels. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to do the backward slow dance. Um, so Dorothy like was at the mansion all the time. Um, but she wasn't like, you know, I think at the time and maybe still, I don't know, there was a lot of, um, uh, sex happening at the Playboy Mansion. I and think a lot probably of, still. Probably still. Probably and so, still. Yeah. But I think a lot of, a lot of times it was expected that the women would, would have sex with, uh, like celebrities who were there. Right. And so Dorothy didn't 
Um, and she actually, she looked down on, on a lot of the women who did. Um, but because it was starting to look like she was going to have a real film career, even though she wasn't having sex with people, which was kind of expected, she was moved into Hugh Hefner's inner circle because, um, so playmates who were moved into legitimate acting were pretty rare, still pretty rare. Um, and it especially was especially important to Hugh Hefner because he was looked at as a Hollywood outsider. Like right. even though he was, you know, very rich and he, all the stars came to his parties, they didn't respect him. And he knew that like, right. He thought that he'd have some kind of like legitimacy if he became a star maker, like if he could. So like in many ways, Paul and Hefner we're, we're both the same. Using her. Yes, yeah. they're both using her as their ticket. Right. So Hefner chose her as the Playmate of the Year in 1980. And as Dorothy's star rose, Paul became more strict and demanding. Um, he wanted control over her finances um, and movie offers, even though she had a business manager and an agent. He was like, I want complete control. I want to, like, okay, everything that comes through. Um, he wanted her to borrow $200,000 from Playboy so that they could buy a house. Um, but she resisted because she was like, this is just something else that Paul wants to keep me like under his thumb, like right. something else that I owe him. Um, and so then it appeared that Dorothy was about to make her big great break because she was cast in the movie. They all laugh starring Audrey Hepburn that was going to be directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Do you know him? I actually don't, but if you <clears throat> name some of his movies, I would probably know. Yes. So he directed, if you saw, saw him, <clears throat> you would be like, he's, he has a very recognizable yeah. like character face. He's been, he's also acted a lot, but he directed the last picture show, oh, um, okay. which he won an Oscar, uh -huh. um, or maybe was nominated. Um, he directed Paper Moon and oh. he directed The Mask. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's directed a ton of films. Um, and this do you mean Mask or do you mean The Mask? I mean The Mask with Jim Carrey. Oh, okay. I, I was thinking you were talking about the movie with Cher about Rocky. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> no. Mask. Mask. Okay. Oh, is it just Mask? I think it's just called Mask. Wait, Jim Carrey one? No. Jim Carrey is the mask, <laughs> and then Cher and Eric Stoltz yeah. movie about Rocky. God, I can't remember his last name. I can't either, but we watched it Rocky in school. Something, but it was um, that one's just called Mask. Yeah. Okay. Not just Mask. He directed <laughs> the, the Mask. mask. <laughs> um, and he directed a lot of like kind of um, rom coms. For the time. Gotcha. Okay. So, okay. but this one was starring Audrey Hepburn. Okay. So Bogdanovich um, brought. Dorothy to his house uh, two or three times to read for the role and was really impressed by her acting skills. But the movie was supposed to film in New York, but Paul wasn't allowed to come along. So I think he really wanted to, but it was a closed set. And she was like, you're just going to be in the, in the way. Like, this is my big break. You need to stay home. So he did. And so while they were on the set, Dorothy, who was now 20, began having an affair with Peter Bogdanovich. Oh. And it was kept pretty quiet because he had previously had an affair with a very young Sybil Shepherd, and it was not received well in the press because they were like, here's this older director who's taking advantage of, of these younger ingenues, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but Dorothy was doing really well in the movie. Like in one scene the people who working there, like editors were like, she was particularly stunning. Like it was one of those scenes that could like make a career. He said that everyone in the screening room saw her star quality. Like Bogdanovich was so enthusiastic about her that he actually called Hugh Hefner um, 
to tell him that he was going to expand Dorothy's role and um, to give her more exposure. And so then Dorothy, um, sorry for that, this ringing noise that keeps happening. <laughs> I'm like trying to use stainless steel straws. And so I keep running into it. Don't so I just apologize want you to know, for saving the planet. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I just want you guys to know I'm a good person. Yeah. <laughs> and every time you hear that ringing noise, it'll be a reminder to you. <laughs> uh, okay. So Dorothy started putting her husband off. So she's having this affair. She would say that she was too tired to talk Um, She wouldn't answer him back when he would say, I love you. And then eventually she started not answering his calls at all. So she flew to L.A. for a press appearance on Johnny Carson, and she wouldn't even meet up with him. And she did agree with me with him in Vancouver the second week of May because her mother was getting remarried. And Paul became pretty rageful. And when they met in Vancouver, they fought after she she asked him for more freedom. She was like, I just need you to lo- loosen your grip. She wasn't asking for a divorce. She was just like, yeah. I need you to let let me go a little bit. And uh, But then, like according to Paul, they made up, they made love. Um, and then, but by late June, so this was May, and then by late June, Dorothy's attorneys had sent Paul a letter saying that they were separated physically and financially. And so I think that's just like, the beginning of a divorce, a lot of places, I don't know how it works in California, but a lot of places you have to be physically and financially separated for a, f- a year before you can file for divorce. So I think that's uh-huh. like saying like, I am marking this time. Like we are right. now separated. Um, so she had closed out all of their bank accounts. So um, Paul like just couldn't get over being cut out of this fame and fortune that he had envisioned for himself. He actually tried grooming another 17 year old whose name was Patty Um to be exactly like Dorothy. Like he had her hair cut like Dorothy. He taught her to walk like Dorothy. He taught her to talk like Dorothy. And then he submitted a playboy and they were like, no, you're crazy, Paul. We want nothing to do with you. Yeah. Um, And then Dorothy was also, Dorothy also cut Paul out of a deal that they had like arranged before this separation to sell these like prints of her roller skating, (laughs) roller Uh skating outfit. Um, And he felt like that was like his last chance to make money. And right. so um, he suspected that she and Bogdanovich were having an affair, but he didn't couldn't prove it. So he hired a private eye to document the affair um, because he wanted, his idea was that he was going to sue Peter Bogdanovich for like a breach of contract um, of like their marriage contract. Um, but Dorothy like wouldn't respond. Like she was hiding behind the lawyers and Paul like basically became despondent when he couldn't get to her. So he started writing these like wild letters to her and to Peter Bogdanovich. Like he never sent them, but they found them. Um, But they were kind of like crazy. Like he was obviously unraveling. So Dorothy was continuing to take meetings. She they had wrapped up filming on um, They All Laughed, but she was taking meetings about appearing in a bunch of films. But she started feeling guilty. Like she cried by herself because she felt she still felt something for Paul like she yeah um well um because of the way that he groomed her she's there's no way that she's not going to feel some sort of guilt and yes. obligation to him yes well in in her mind she's so young he made her the star like he brought her to Hollywood so you know even though he he didn't make her a star but you know right. she made herself a star but he got in her head enough to make her believe that to be true yes yes and she's 20 yeah. Um, 
so anyway, so she she wasn't wanting to go back to him, but she just wanted to make sure that he was taken care of after the divorce. Mm-hmm. And so um, at one point she was in Houston doing promotion for the film and she called Paul and agreed to meet him for lunch on August 8th. And Paul was like, when she called him, this was kind of like their first, um, their first contact in a long time. So he was like, this is it. I'm going to win her back. Like she wants to, she wants to come back to me. He told his friends, like everything's going to be all right. But then they have this lunch date and it was like a complete disaster. Like Dorothy was like, Oh no, I'm not, I'm here to tell you like I'm in love with Peter Bogdanovich and I just want to get my stuff and I want to talk about a financial settlement. Like that is what her agenda was. And he was like, so he just like became unglued. He like found someone, um, in the classifieds who would sell him a shotgun. And so they met on August 8th and then the following Wednesday, um, he picked up the gun. And then that night he dropped by the photographer friend's studio and he was like in a great mood. He was like, he, and then he like randomly started talking about this woman, Claudia Jennings, who had been a playmate who had died while a movie was in progress. And he was like, you know, some playmates get killed. And when that happens, it causes a lot of chaos. Just like randomly out of the blue starts talking about that. To who? To just a photographer friend. Oh, he was just okay, like randomly there. So this was like on the Wednesday night. And then, um, and, and Bogdanovich had found out about the private detective who was following Dorothy. But Dorothy told him like, don't worry about it. Like, I think that Paul and I are about to reach a settlement and it's better if I do it by myself and go and meet him. Um, so she had agreed to meet him on that Thursday. So Wednesday he bought the gun. Thursday she was supposed to meet him. So she got to Paul's house around 1230. And we know that because the, the private eye was following her. Wow. And the guy called Paul to make sure everything was okay. And Paul said, yeah, it's fine. And then the PI kept calling Paul throughout the day and never got another response. So around five, Patty, who is the 17-year-old that he had been grooming, who had moved in with Paul, right. and another girl um, came to the house because they were living there and saw that Paul's door was closed. And they knew that Dorothy was there because they saw her car. And they just assumed that Dorothy wanted privacy. So they left and went roller skating. Because that apparently is what everybody did. So a lot of roller skating. A lot, so much roller skating in the story. Like you didn't know. Come for the murder, stay for the (laughs) roller skating. (laughs) Roller skating. Um, Spoiler alert: murder. Okay. So Paul also had this roommate who was a doctor, um, and he got home after his shift and noticed that the door was closed. And then right before midnight, the private investigator called Patty. And was like, can you knock on the door? Because I'm worried. And she was like, no. Because she didn't want to get yelled at. Yeah, she said no. So he actually was like, can I speak to the roommate doctor? And the doctor agreed to go and check. And when he knocked on the door, he didn't get an answer. And he opened the door and he found Paul and Dorothy um, both dead. And Paul had killed Dorothy and then shot himself. And there are actually some really awful aspects of the, this murder, like really graphic, horrible things. And um, that is not my jam. So okay. if you're interested in... in Check out the article. Yeah, check out the article. It talks in detail. If you don't want to sleep ever again, go ahead and read that. I mean, it's just really gross and I don't care to talk about it. So he killed her. He killed himself. Um, so the private investigator was actually 
Like, uh, can I ask, was there like sexual assault? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The private investigator was at the house before the police because he had, you know, the guy had found. So he called Hefner. I think he was hoping to get some kind of like money or something. And then Hugh Hefner called Peter Bogdanovich, who Hugh Hefner says went into shock. And so after the murder, Bogdanovich paid for the funeral and the cremation. And he flew Dorothy's entire family out to L.A., including her little sister, Louise, and who was, I think, 12 at the time. She was eight years younger. So Hugh Hefner and Bogdanovich were both at the funeral. They comforted the family and really kind of took them under their wing. And then a year after her death, the movie They All Laughed was released. And it was met with pretty disappointing numbers, as you can imagine, like a comedy and then this whole huge story about yeah, this woman who died kind of put it. like a... Yeah. So it actually, people now look back on it as like one of his best films, but at the time it was like, it was like quickly withdrawn from the box office. And Bogdanovich right. then was, he was so upset that he ultimately sang about $5 million of his own dollars into re-releasing the film and it bankrupted him. Wow. Um, and then in 1984, Bogdanovich wrote a book called The Killing of a Unicorn, Dorothy Stratton. And in it, he claims that Hugh Hefner sexually assaulted Dorothy Stratton in 1978 and that she had only married Paul because of Hefner's repeated advances. And so she had married Paul as like a way to make him stop, make him stop. Wow. And apparently in the book, it says like, um, like seduced or something. But the original, like when he originally wrote it, the original manuscript said raped but then they changed it. I mean, it was 1984. Because Hugh Hefner made them change it? Probably. Yeah. I mean, he says that they had like a fatherly, um, he was felt, was like a fatherly thing. But I mean, right. it was kind of known that he uh, had sex with all of these playmates. So. Yeah. So. And this is another crazy thing. Okay. Oh, yeah. In 1988, Peter Bogdanovich married Dorothy's sister, Louise. Oh my God, I remember that now. When she was 20. I Now I remember that. That's nuts. Yeah, so he had paid for her to go to like private school. She was 12 and then in modeling classes after Dorothy's death. And then, and they were married for 13 years. So crazy. Wow. Um, her death inspired two motion pictures. Um, in 1981, there was a TV movie called The Death of a Centerfold. And in 1983, um, there was a movie called Star 80. And then, um, like, the song Californication by the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh-huh. is about her. Um, I so never knew is that. The I'm Best Was to Yet to Come. I know, I never knew that either. Whoa. Uh, the Best Was Yet to Come to by Brian Adams and um, a song called Cover Girl by the Canadian rock band Prism. Who, huh. I, I don't think Who are, like, your favorite, favorite band ever. I guess. Yeah, so that is the story of wow, Dorothy that's Stratton. Crazy. It's crazy. It's heartbreaking, um, but it's also so salacious because it has all those celebrity. So look up Peter Bogdanovich because I, it's like you know in the name, but then yeah. when you see his face, you'll be like, oh, that guy. And I remember there was like a couple years ago there was a whole like eight part series documentary I think on Amazon about Hugh Hefner. Oh, and all okay. of that. I feel like all of that was included. Yeah. But of course, they kind of, in the documentary, they paint Hugh Hefner as like a hero. Oh, right. Of course. But uh, <laughs> I don't think he was. Mm. Let's just say that. Me neither. Man. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready for a crazy story? Yes, I am. Awesome. So this 
story is nuts, dude. When I read the um, the headline, I like immediately got like a Beyonce bad bitch lady boner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Hell yeah. Okay, here we go. This was, I'm not going to read the headline because it'll give away the story, but it was written by Beth Slavic at the William at Week. Wait, <laughs> what? Okay. Um, okay, so I know the story you're doing. No, because that is a story that I have prepared for next week. Oh, no. <laughs> But it is so crazy, and I'm really excited to hear your take on it. Man, and what if I'm you were going to do it better than me? I mean, I guess we'll never know. Now you'll judge me harder on this one, because you'll be like, I would have told it better. I would have told that very differently. Dead. I would have told it the same way that Beth Slavic told it, because she tells it, it's so good. Right? Like, I don't even... So there, I have other sources, but I feel like her article that she wrote is so amazing yeah. that I just want to, like... Basically, like, I don't, I'm not going to like read her article from start to finish, but a lot of it is quoted from this article and the credit all needs to go to Beth Slaughter. Oh yeah. She's an amazing writer. And from reading other articles about this story, I'm like, oh, she, I mean, it's the same information, but the way she frames it is like so much better. And she puts more, I mean, she's put so much more color into it. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I'm going to let you tell your story, but I'm, do you care if I like interject if I no, remember please things. do let's do this together I just can't let's believe do it together how random is that because you know there this isn't like a recent story no I know in this story my husband just like said it he was like I was getting ready and he was sitting at his desk and was like oh I, here's a headline and like read <laughs> it to me and I was like what yes <laughs> send it to me um that's crazy how did you find it I don't I mean I was searching around um I don't want to give away why I was searching around okay. for what I was searching for because I think it gives it away. You're planning a murder? I was searching around for like how to murder someone and this popped up and I was like, huh. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, let's, we'll tell it together then. So I'll tell it and then you can just like jump in. I'll jump in. in whenever you want. I'm okay. sure you're going to be and You can thorough. correct me if I'm wrong on anything too. Oh, Jen, you know perfect. I don't know this anything. This is perfect. I don't know anything more than <laughs> Beth Slavic told me. <laughs> Thanks, Beth Slavic. Um, okay, so Suzanne Kunhausen, um, she did not grow up around happy marriages. Okay, when she was, um, she grew up to a father who was an Air Force cook and her mother was a homemaker and they separated early. She was in the second grade when they uh, separated. So her life was always chaotic, um, you know, with her husband, uh, with her father being um, an Air Force cook. So they were always shuffled around with, between schools, homes, and parents. Um, as she says, my parents love me, but they couldn't teach me how to have a successful marriage any more than they could teach me how to fly. You know, like that's yeah. always important for kids is to grow up around. You have to see people being in a happy relationship in right. order to like have a happy relationship, I think. Um, so she, um, Susan became a uh, licensed practi- practical nurse and then a registered nurse. And she lived, um, she moved to Oregon in the early 80s um, and then later um, lived in Portland, Oregon. Um, Well, first, it says first she settled in Coos Bay, which I don't know where that is. And then she later lived in um, Portland. Um, She was said to be like, 
totally outgoing, loud and vivacious, and like big boisterous laughs. I love. I'm sure. Did you love this part too? Oh yeah, yeah. She, she went to shows at Harvey's Comedy Club and she'd sit in the front row. I know. It just I made like, me be like, I know this one. That's our people. Yeah, she's yeah. our people. Like I, you know, every time. Like, every comedy club I have worked at, I feel like they're always like, oh, here's John. He's here on a Thursday. Like, he comes every week by himself, and he sits right up front. And it's always, like, just the best audience member. And there's a guy at the... Should I say? No. There's a guy at the Laughing Skull Lounge that is, like, at every show, and he's in the front row. But every time he's with a different woman. Is he really? I don't don't know that I've ever noticed. I'll point him out to you next time. Yeah. Every time. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. He's like, this is my go-to place. I know it's going to be good. I guess. Yeah. I guess. All right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, usually the people that come every week are not with dates. Like, they're usually, like, people who are just, like... This is the thing I do. On yeah, Thursdays. yeah. But I like have a glass of wine, go see right. some comedy. Um, so, um, in 1988, a friend um, and Suzanne's mother uh, paid for a personal ad in for Susan in the Williamette Week. Is it Willamette or William? Willamette? Willamette Week. So this is the same article. Uh, the same paper that this article came from yeah that's so, so isn't that weird yeah. so in 1988 they like bought a personal ad this was back in the day before you know tinder and stuff you would take out personal ads and be yeah. like single white female looking for blue blue uh, for a rich <laughs> man to no i'm just kidding um so she wrote her ad said single white female 33 overweight but not over life seek single man who wants more out of a relationship than just slender love it um i love it too I love her. Um, I do too. So uh, someone replied and said, hi, different. And my name is Mike. I'm a 39-year-old divorced white male. I enjoy most things in nature from wandering in the ape caves at Mount St. Helens to walking on the beach at sunset. He sounds amazing. How romantic. (laughs) Um, So... The day um, she first spoke to him on January 30th, 1988, on the phone. And they talked to each other over and over again, um, way before they even met. She thinks it was about 100 hours before they even met. She said that he had a nice, a nice voice. He had a nice voice. And um, she said that he was impressed. She was impressed that he wanted to talk about the deeper things in life. Yeah, that's it nice. so deep. I mean, can you imagine someone in this day and age, like, spending 100 hours on the phone before meeting? I mean, I, I, mean, it w- I would hate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, catfish people do it all the time. People on catfish. Oh, I guess that's yeah. true. Um, so um, then um, they had their first date in February 1988. They met at Crystal Springs Rhododendron Garden. Uh, and they fed ducks and Mike tossed, it says, Mike tossed unsalted peanuts to the squirrels like that's a detail beth slavic that's that right. i would not have gotten no that's and really good for, journalism yeah, we're painting that picture yeah unsalted um so within the year they ended up going to reno and they got married uh it says mike liked to play slots and susan figured there was no bigger gamble in life than marriage ain't that the truth ain't that the truth that's the truth um so basically unfortunately for her the gamble um it didn't pay off it says it's like the marriage soured very quickly like right after they got married 
there was no more like hiking and walks on the beach. Yeah. Like he just never wanted to leave the house. He just turned into a different person immediately. Of course. Which sucks because she was so like full of life and right. you know, you know, loved to laugh. And Mike, to give you some background, he grew up in Portland. Um, and he was adopted as a newborn in 1948 by a couple in their 30s. He um, told her that he was in Vietnam, um, but records actually list him as just the switchboard operator. Oh. Um, but I guess maybe it was in Vietnam, so maybe... So he told her that he was in combat, and then he wasn't? Yeah. Probably. Um, so then... Uh, within a few years after they got married, Mike got a job as a janitorial supervisor for Oregon Entertainment, which is the parent company of Fantasy Adult Video. So a janitor oh. in a, a porn adult store. video store. But I wonder if, because you know, yeah. I feel like in that time, adult video stores were where people would go to watch porn. Yeah. They would have like the little booths where they could do peep shows and yeah. stuff. Like, I think what they're saying is he used to, like, mop that shit up. Gross. So gross. Um, or who knows? Maybe he was, like, an executive. <laughs> 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 Writing schedules and planning <laughs> meetings and stuff. I don't know. Um, so, basically, um, he started, re- um, you know, slowly revealing to her in their marriage that, you know, he was just not a happy person. It says that his philosophy on life was, life is a shit sandwich. Every day you take another bite until you die. Oh. Which is so nice. Lovely. Lovely. Um, and they never had any children, um, which Suzanne was fine with. Basically, he just kind of sat around and did nothing and then just griped at her for every move she made and just was not a great... Not a great marriage. Yeah, it sounds um, like a slog. She said that whenever she tried to kiss him, he would like burp. Oh, I know. Just gross. I just picture like Ed Bundy, like a really overweight Ed Bundy, like sitting right. on the couch with his belly out, like burping. Ugh. Um, so 17 years into their marriage, it took 17 years. Ugh. Um, she finally had enough and she, in September, 2005, she kicked him out of the house. Um, and then he moved into his father's home. Um, but Susan never changed the locks or the alarm code, which was, uh, 1210, which was their anniversary was the alarm code. Yeah. Um, so like I said, she was, um, an emergency room nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when she was 51 years old, this on the evening of Wednesday, Wednesday, September 6, 2006, um, she ended her shift at the Providence Portland Medical Center and um, headed to the salon. And then after she um, finished at the salon, she went back an hour later, she went home to rest. Um, when she got to her house in the mudroom at the back of her house, Susan found a note by the microwave um, written by Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was weird because he didn't live there anymore. But he wrote, Sue, haven't been sleeping, had to get away, went to the beach. Yeah. She's probably like, oh, now you want to go to the fucking beach? Right. <laughs> now you want to get out? Okay. Um, so, and then he wrote at the end, love me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so she unlocked the door and went into the kitchen and she heard the um, security alarm beep and she disarmed it and then walked um, through the house and went back outside and then um went and got her mail came back inside 
And then she saw that in her bedroom, the bedroom was like super dark, which was not normal because she would usually open up the curtains. So she was like, what's going on? That's weird. I thought I opened the curtains in the morning. So she went into her room and then from behind the bedroom door, all of a sudden, a five foot nine strange man jumps on her, like lurches at her. God, that's such such a nightmare I mean just yeah. to be like isn't that just so the scariest thing to like unlock your door go and like think you're just in your house by Ugh. yourself and have a stranger pop out because no like, that's everybody's nightmare that's yeah. why you like open the shower curtain when you go to bathroom right because you have to see make sure yeah yeah so like I can't I can't be caught unawares oh so scary um so he wore dockers a blue striped shirt and a tan baseball hat pulled over his eyes and he had long hair in a ponytail that was tucked into the cap. Because then no one could tell that you have long hair. Right. Whatever. Idiot. So, and he wore yellow rubber gloves on his hands. And he carried a red and black claw hammer. Oof. Um, so, most people would, in this situation, would run immediately. But because yeah. Susan is such a, um, a pro, like she's a nurse. She's been a nurse for 30 years. And ER nurses are superheroes dude like they're used to like having to you know disarm people that are injured and and flailing around or like administer like ivs to people who are thrashing around like they're and they learn about self-defense and all that stuff like nurses are bad ass yes dude we all know a nurse in our lives or maybe you're a nurse like Shout out to them because that is the hardest job and they are all amazing. Yes. Um, and so um, because of her training, she knew um, that and, and her self-defense training, she knew that if she got right up in front of his face, that he couldn't hit her with grab, like, you know, with force. Right. That the force so, would be, yeah. the blows would be less than if she was standing farther away, which is just amazing. Like, and good tip. Good tip. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I didn't know that. And just the fact that in that instance that she sees a stranger come running out of her bedroom or come running out of her, in her bedroom with a hammer. Yeah. And she is like, I got to get closer to this guy. Yes. That she thinks. I'm like, she's amazing. I know. So brave. Oh, my God. That's crazy. So she rushed towards him. She knew that, like, like I said, he would have less force if he hit her. And he did hit her. And it landed. The first blow landed on her left temple. And she screamed. And this is, oh, my God. If Did you, like, freak out as much as I did when I read this? Which she said, scream loudly is, who are you? What do you want? Right? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Dude. Okay. Like you never want to be in this situation ever, 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 ever. Right. Like, and that this is not cool that she was ever in this situation. But how fucking bad is, ass is it that she got to be like, who are you and who do you work for? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, she has um, a lot of good lines. Dude. Yeah. She's amazing. So Susan was only five foot four, which is how tall I am. And so she was five inches shorter than the man in the baseball right. hat. Um, and she had two bad knees from repeated injuries, um, but she actually outweighed her attacker significantly. Yeah. He was like 190 and she was more than that. She doesn't need to tell you what her weight is. Right. Why are you asking? Alone. She's a fucking badass. Okay. So... Um, 
she slammed, so she used her weight to slam her body up against his, and he didn't fall. Instead, he pushed her back. Um, and then the only words that he uttered that entire night is he said, "You're strong," and fuck yeah, she yeah, is. she is. And then um, I'm she sorry, said I feel that, like I've been dropping so many f bombs. Me too. Episode. I can't help it. <laughs> Between the first guy and then this guy, I know, we're very excited. We're this very, episode. <laughs> we're amped. Okay, so. She said that that phrase just sent surges of adrenaline through her. Right. She was Which, like, yeah, I yeah. Am. Imagine that like being the first compliment you got in 30 years too. It was like when a man's <laughs> right. attacking you. Yeah. Ooh, he's you're like, strong. you're strong. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to fucking kill you now. <laughs> and so um, she, she said um, she knew that he was there to kill her, but she had she didn't know why. Right. And she pushed up against him again and said, who sent you? <laughs> oh, <laughs> love it. Who sent you? And so she managed to wrestle the hammer from him, and then she hit him three times in his skull. Yes. Um, yeah. And then he got the hammer back, and then she... Grabbed his throat, pushed him up against the wall, and said, "Who sent you here?" Yeah. Oh my god. And so the um, the man's face had turned red, then purple, and then darker, and then blue. And then she was like, she ran. And right. then that's when she saw the opportunity to leave. She and she left him on the floor, and she got out of there. So, um, but he actually got up again. And then he spun around and he punched her and he split her lip and he, he punched her again and she fell to the floor. Um, and he was standing over her with the hammer and she said she looked at the floor and I thought, I'm going to die today. Yeah. Um, how fucking scary. Like as a hammer coming down on your... Ugh. Oh my gosh. And she said to this day, she's not sure how, but she managed to pull the man to the floor and she, um, and she told herself like that she had to get the hammer. So she pulled him to the floor and then she started biting him like crazy. Yes. She bit his arm. She bit his flank. What's a flank? I think that your side, like okay. your, <laughs> the side of your stomach. <laughs> she bit his flank. She bit his thigh. And then she bit heels ding dong. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She, hell yeah, Susan. And then at the same time, she was, the same time she's like, oh my God. The same time that she's biting him and like attacking him, she is simultaneously going through his pockets to find ID. So crazy. To figure out who he was. And then she was thinking, maybe if I found his wallet, I could throw it under the bed and someone will find it later. But I need to find a way to get his identification so someone will know who this man was that killed me. It's, I mean, God, I just can't, you never know how you're going to react in situations like that. But I do remember one time I was playing like hide and go seek at a graveyard when I was oh smart um, yeah uh, we used to go to this, <laughs> this one graveyard like a woodlawn all the time and like hang out which is horrible no that's um, cool but so we're playing hide and go seek as a teenager and somebody came up and scared me and I just froze like stood still and then fell to the ground like that oh is my god my, that is so crazy that you said my, that I neither fight nor flight I'm just like boom. That is hilarious that you said that because I have said the two times that someone has snuck up on me like that, yeah. my immediate reaction was to freeze and fall on the ground. <laughs> I wonder if that's like your body just like, play dead, play dead. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember I was like washing dishes 
And I was in this house that I rented with like two of my other friends and I was washing dishes. It was at night and the window was right in front. No. And you know how like sometimes it takes a minute for your eyes to adjust to what is on the other side of the window when it's super dark. So I'm just sitting there like washing dishes and I zone out. And then all of a sudden I see a man's face staring at me right in the, um, once my eyes adjusted and I I like spun around, like I jumped in the air, right. did a flip, and then fell on the floor and cowered. And my roommate Brian <laughs> ran in and was like, "It was me." <laughs> I was like, You're dead. "Not cool." I'm like, man, that's scary. When you learn that that's what you're, man, please don't attack me or Sally. We're just yeah. like, <laughs> like I want to be a badass Susan. Me too, but I am not a badass Susan. I, I am just, uh, you know, like. I would like to think that, like, yeah, I would react like Susan or, like, a episode of Buffy, the uh-huh. Vampire Slayer. Like, I would just immediately know Right, what karate. to do. To, like, rifle through, his, as he's attacking yeah. me, rifle through his pockets for an ID so that the police can find him. Dude, she's amazing. She's amazing. So the fight lasted um, about 14 minutes, which is a long time, yes. dude. Because in That's my mind, exhausting. I'm thinking of, like... This is like a couple minutes max, but 14 minutes is a lifetime. It is. Oh, it's, that's crazy. And so um, they were both, um, now at this point, they're both in the hallway outside of Susan's bedroom. And she threw her left leg over his body, climbed on top of him, hooked her arm around his neck and said, tell me who sent you here and I will call you a fucking ambulance. Yes. And yelled it in his face. That is she my favorite. She said fucking too. I love so it. Yeah. <laughs> and she yelled in his face and he said nothing. Instead, he just growled. And so she leaned forward, tightened her forearm against his throat, and then he stopped moving. So she then grabbed the hammer and ran outside to the neighbors and the neighbors called 911. So the police ended up coming... And then um, it, she, uh, when she called, well, when she called the 911 too, it's kind yeah. of a cool, like there's a whole transcript, which you can like look it up later when she called, um, unless, do you want to talk about the transcript? Oh, <laughs> no, I just love that. So her neighbor called yeah. and they were like, she, the neighbor was like, she's bleeding. And they were like, does she need an ambulance? And the neighbor goes, no. She's a nurse. She thinks that the intruder needs an ambulance. She thinks he's dead. Yeah. So they called an ambulance for him. Yeah, for him. Like yeah. She was like, I don't need an ambulance. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm a nurse. I'm a nurse. Oh, my God. And he did need an ambulance. I mean, he did. Yeah. Because he was dead. Yeah. So he died. So she killed the attacker that was sent to attack, like, to kill her. Yeah. And so... Um, it didn't take them long to figure out who it was because they found his ID in his back pocket. His name was Ed Haffey, and he was a 59-year-old Vietnam vet, um, apparently with a long rap sheet. Sheet. Rap sheet. Rap, rap sheet. sheet. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then the day after the attack, Susan's friend um, was helping her at her house, you know, to like clean up yeah. or whatever, and she found a backpack in the basement. Oh and God. in the basement... Um, they saw that um, um, inside of it was a container of Hershey's syrup, mm-hmm. $200 in cash, diabetes pills, which like, what, what's up with the syrup, right? 
<laughs> I know. I'm like, what? I got some. <laughs> like, I need my diabetes pills, but I also really need this syrup. Um, a day book and a paste job made out to Haffy. So, um, so, and, and in the entry of the day book, it said Monday, September 4th, 2006, call Mike. Mm-hmm. Mike, and then in the envelope, it had um, Mike, and then there was a manila envelope in the backpack, and inside it was Mike's new cell phone number. Right. Mike is her ex-husband. Yeah. The husband that she had kicked out of the house or whatever. Yeah. So bur- the, burp in the face. Yeah. The burp husband. in the face guy. An autopsy showed that Haffy actually had a near lethal dose of cocaine in his system when he attacked Suzanne. Mm-hmm. I guess he had to like do a bunch of coke to amp himself up. It, and then court records revealed that 15 years earlier, he had actually... Um, Haffy had actually arranged the murder of his ex-girlfriend, 39-year-old Georgia Lee Dutton. So, like, this was not his first right. murder. And Oof. then, um, and what's crazy is, so he pled guilty to conspiracy to commit aggravated murder um, in 1994, and then he spent nine years in jail. And then in 2003, he was released. And after he got out of jail. Yeah. And then after he got out of jail, he moved to Portland and he got a job um, also cleaning floors at Fantasy Adult Video. Mm-hmm. Barf. Barf. Um, so financial records also showed that um, the day of the attack, Mike had um, dro- driven to um, the coast and checked into um, a hotel um, and then just for that night, and then he returned to Portland later that night. Um, and it said that he had spent $339 on a Magnum revolver. So and Wait, he, after the murder? Yeah. Okay. And on, and on September 8th, he had left a suicide note at his father's house. So, and in the suicide note read, all I ever wanted was to be loved. And every time I had it, I fucked it up. Uh, by burping in people's face and... And trying, trying to, to kill, kill your... your wife. Yeah, you fucked it up. You fucked it up, yeah. idiot. So anyway, so he was, I guess, had plans to commit suicide. Do you but think then he really did? He didn't. I feel like he didn't. Like, he left that note. I feel like he left that note and left town so that they would think he was going to commit suicide. But right. I think he was just like, I'm going to go fuck off somewhere. I'm sorry. Now that I've, now that I've unleashed the F beast yeah i can't stop so this whole episode is just gonna be this yeah (laughs) sorry (laughs) um yeah i feel like he was just trying to make it look like he was going to be like look like he was sad and then yeah like he was his plan was to just disappear yeah Uh, yeah you're probably right because he doesn't seem like he yeah he said that he um when the police finally caught up with them he said because they ended up finding him, and they right. said he said, I have nothing to live for anymore. And it's like, well, then why would you? If you had nothing to live for, then why would you hire someone to kill your wife? Right. Because it also turns out that um, he had lost his job week his job weeks earlier and he had no place to live because Susan um, had actually named her brother the beneficiary on her life insurance policy, and Mike knew that. But um, Suzanne and Mike had both paid off the house, and when the house was worth about three hundred thousand dollars, so if she died, he would he would have get the house because they were still married. Yes, yeah, so he very much so he was like, I need to 
kill her before we get a divorce because they weren't officially divorced. Right, right. And um, yeah, so they already, it was like pretty undeniable that he, and plus there was another person um, that came forward from his work that um, also testified that he had asked him to do it as well. Um, And then the security records show that someone had disabled the alarm at the house while Susan was at work. Yeah. So he said, so um, Mike said that he did do it when he dropped off the note about going to the beach, Mm -hmm. but then he did not, but that he denied letting Haffy inside, which bullshit, 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 bullshit. On November 17th, another witness told police that he had driven Haffy to meet a bald man in the parking lot of an Applebee's. And then days after that, he saw the man's picture in the news. So he's saying that he's... He saw Ed with Mike. He saw Ed with Mike. He saw the killer. Yeah. Or the intruder. The guy intruder. With Mike. Yeah, Mike, he pointed out that Mike was the one that he drove him to. Um, and so he tried to deny it, but the evidence was overwhelming. And then on August 30th, 2007, Mike pled guilty to soliciting Susan's murder. But he was supposed to be released on September 14th, 2014. Can I interject a fun detail? Yeah. <laughs> Another fun Susan thing. So I found this in a different um, article. Sorry, I brought up my notes on it. Um, yeah, please. So... At the sentencing, so he was sentenced to 10 years, which is just crazy, right? That's all. So, um, but at the sentencing hearing, um, Susan got up and t- said, if I ever believed you deserve to be dead, I would have at least had the balls to kill you myself. Hell yeah. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yes. And then in his statement, Mike said, I heard a lot of people over the last year and I'm sorry. That's all I can say. I'm sorry. And then in the courtroom, Susan just started laughing like, oh my uncontrollably god at that and then she started crying but um okay so that i just want to oh interject that because i thought that was also super badass that just made me start right <laughs> like we're, we're standing on the top sarcastic of clapping <laughs> we're standing on the top of the table and we are like oh captain my captain <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> teach me susan yeah um so Yes, so he was supposed to be released on September 14, 2014. And Susan, um, who had already, she filed for divorce the day after he was arrested. And but and so she had to prepare herself. Like, you know, she was, if he's getting out, he's probably going to try to kill me again. So right. she like, you know, um, she said, and this is so sad. She said, I'm doing a life sentence for picking a bad husband. Ugh, that, that makes me so sad. And so she practiced, she bought a gun, she practiced shooting at a nearby range, she bought a house that had was surrounded by gravel so that when you when people walked down you could hear the crunching. Yeah. That's really smart. That is really smart. Let's all cover our houses in gravel. The whole the whole yeah. house. Yeah. <laughs> the hallway, everything. Um, so she said that if he came here, he was not going to get close enough to hurt me, she says. But on um, Friday the thirteenth. In June 2014, cancer killed Mike. Yeah, that's the only time I'm going to ever cheer for cancer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not a thing to cheer for except for in this instance. So uh, 92 days before his release, Mike died from cancer. Um, And letters, it says jailhouse letters show that Mike never acknowledged his guilt. He kept... Um, he kept saying that he was innocent and all of this, which whatever. Yeah. And so, um, but 
you know, she, and so Susan continued to work as a nurse until December, 2017, I'm sorry, 2014. And, um, people, you know, call her a hero and she didn't like that people called her a hero because she was like, you know, I killed a man. I don't right. want people to call me a hero. But then her boss said to her, they're not calling you a hero because you killed a man. They're calling you a hero because they want to believe given the same circumstances, they too might survive. Yeah. It's great. Uh, I, I also read like her, the, I, another Susan, another Susan statement. Yeah. Like she said, I didn't choose his death. I chose my life. Yes. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I love her so much. I know. Oh my God. So, and oh, the other thing, sorry, this was, um, so she, she has put her focus. She's now like an advocate for crime victims and she has, um, worked with the development of like a port, a web portal for crime victims so that crime victims can kind of like get support they need. So what a badass. Oh my God. I like, if we had a, a mascot or an idol or like, you know, a portrait of someone in our podcast studio which uh-huh. we don't have um i would want <laughs> to mean, paint it in your kitchen <laughs> yeah my kitchen i would like sometimes my to kitchen. have um a painted picture of susan kohenhausen is that how you say kohenhausen i think so yeah kohenhausen a po- painted picture of her yeah do we have any artists Our out hero. there <laughs> can somebody yeah, can you paint it we'll we'll post a picture of her and then somebody send us send us a painting i kind of love like every picture you see of her on a lot of the articles, it's her like picture right after the attack. Yeah, and like normally you'd be like, "Wow, why are you posting that picture?" But it just shows like she looks badass. Like she looks like somebody that you're like, "Oh, I don't want to mess with that lady." Like I, I and I'm like, "Yeah, post that picture to be like, yeah, you can hurt her and you can like, but she's not going down." Yeah, and that's yeah. just like the whole thing just goes to show too that she's. Five four and like that's not very tall. Yeah. I, I consider myself to not be a tall person. I'm five four. Right. And but it's really she survived on her knowledge. Yes. And her preparedness. I love the story. I do too. All right, guys. That's our crazy episode. There What'd you, you have it. The best. Yes. Write in and let us know if you have a different favorite. Maybe we'll put together another compilation episode down the line of listener favorites. So if you have, if there's a crazy story that you thought was, should have been on this, let us know. Let's start some controversy. Yeah. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? Do you hate the stories that we just played? We're sorry if you do. Oh, we're sorry. (laughs) All right. Well, you guys, hey, do all the things. Rate and review. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. That's all at Dumb Love Podcast. Or you can email us your thoughts at dumblovepod at gmail.com. And we love you guys. And thanks for thanks for sticking with us. And I hope you guys are doing something that's relaxing. Exactly. And you guys are having a break somewhere. We just want you guys to relax and get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum, 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 dum-